Hi, this is Interplay, Connections in Music. I'm Michael Shapiro, your host. Our guest today needs no introduction. Music directorships all over the world at this point, St. Louis, Washington, Lyon, Detroit, guest conductorships where I got to meet you years ago. We can figure that out at the New York Philharmonic. Yeah. Chicago, LA, you name it, all over Europe, all over the United States, and probably in Asia too, which I probably don't know about. So hello, Leonard Slatkin. Thank you for joining hello, me. Hello, Michael Shapiro. <laughs> Great to be with you. Well, what we do on this program is talk to people not only in this period of um, rest from our usual travails, but also trying to figure out where we're going from where we are. Uh, you have been doing this a long time, as I have, on, on the conductor, composer-conductor side. But what I'm interested in is how are you spending your days now? I know you're a great writer and I read everything you write, your books and your articles. But how are you dealing with being home? Something that is new to you probably for it, this long period is. of time. I didn't know I had this many rooms in my house. <laughs> quite pleasant. Actually, you used an interesting word, the travails of the time. The ones that we used to have and the ones that we have now. I think you just have to change what you are doing in terms of what you consider those travails. For me, it's actually not a negative word. It means that you have something to do, some obstacle that you have to overcome. So for me, at my age, 76 almost, I've pretty much not spent this time dealing with aspects of conducting. I've more or less wrapped up my third book which now I had time to do with a real concentrated period. That was rare. I've been keenly interested in how other people are handling this time. And on my website, I've been almost weekly, if not even more often than that, trying to think of what it's going to be like when we emerge from all this, which we will at some point, but we don't know how. I have been doing a lot of reading. All those books back there, I mostly had read before. They're all the ones I have that are about mostly musical subjects, biographies, commentaries, some fiction books about music. Uh, my other book library is downstairs and my audio and video libraries and all of my music is downstairs. That's something that was really different. For 43 years, when I was a music director, my entire musical output, the scores, piano music, all those kind of things were housed with the orchestras. So if I needed something, I would ask them to either bring it to me, give it to me when I was at Detroit, St. Louis, whatever it was. Now, for the first time in all those years, I actually have all the music. So a lot of time has been cataloging it, seeing what I have, deciding what needed to go to other places. My father's violin music, for example, I sent to the Curtis Institute because that's where he studied and many of the markings in the music come from his teacher, Ephraim Zimbalist. So the school now has a real history and connection with that. Much music that I had, I sent to my son, especially the music that was related more to the jazz and pop fields because my son is 26 and a composer in the film industry. 
A lot of music, music that I really realized I probably would never get around to conducting or asking myself the question, what was I going to do with the five different complete editions of the Beethoven symphonies? <laughs> Not those, I passed on to the Manhattan School of Music where I do a couple of weeks of teaching each year. So I pared down the scores and used some of this time, not much, but some, to look at scores of pieces that I've never conducted, that maybe I will at some point, but have never felt adequate enough to do them justice. Like the B minor, well, I've done the B minor mass, but the St. Matthew Passion, or Bruckner Nine, pieces that I've just not gotten around to, and I have to decide whether or not at some point I will do them. I was gonna ask you that later about what pieces would you like to do that you haven't done? No, um, never but, <laughs> but, you, but you gave it already, you gave the answer. I'm just curious um, uh, about first your third book, because I've read your others, and I do go on your website now and then, LennartSlapkin.com, mm -hmm. for the wonderful articles you, you write about all kinds of things. You, you wrote about your travels, you write about what it's like to be a conductor on the road, you write about pieces, you write about it, people, people. It's just a wonderful experience reading your writing because it's so, Thank it's you. like, well, it's like the way you speak. People have said that, and that's, I take as a great compliment. Yeah. I try to write very much as I am. There's no ghostwriter, I and mean, here it is. There's a little bit of shadow coming on from the actually lovely day we're having in St. Louis today. The new book is called Musical Chairs. Uh, what's the subtitle? Some, something like uh, the classical music in the 21st century. And I use the classical word very advisedly. I normally don't like to use that term because my essential being has been to more be more inclusive of pretty much every genre, every style. I grew up that way. I was a soundstage brat. I was hanging around the Capitol Record Studios with Sinatra and all those people. And of course, with my parents being in all the phases of music in Los Angeles, folks like Stravinsky and Hindemith and Walton were popping around. You never knew when they were gonna show up. So the book, this one is a bit different than the first two in that it does try to address issues that have changed and that the 21st century has to look at in a different way. So for example, even though it was an issue previously, the question of diversity within the orchestras and administrations and within the soloists and within our audience, that's something that's very different now and amplified certainly by the scenes we've seen on streets in this country. It's kind of like living in the 1960s again, but perhaps yes. worse. I wanted to ask you about a piece I was listening to today. Your recording yeah. in 1985, highlights from Porgy and Bess. Oh yeah. In well, a ger German orchestra. East German orchestra. <laughs> Rundfunk. Yeah, this was uh, a suggestion from Philips who I'd made one disc for prior. And I don't know why they wanted to do a highlights version, much less recorded in East Germany. I was still relatively young in the profession, but I went there. We had Roberta Alexander and Simon Estes singing 
the majority of the two roles, but you had this East German orchestra and chorus. Right. And we all deal with Porgy now in very different ways in the 21st century. Yeah. Question of sensibilities, how do we approach the language, the dialect, even yeah. some of the words, do we change them or don't we? Well, back then, trying to get an East German chorus <laughs> to sing seven come 11, and it comes out something like seven come 11. But everybody took it in stride. I, I haven't heard it in a long time. Um, interestingly, I'll probably be leading a production of it next season. Uh, the other problem that we've had, of course, is bringing specifically American dialect to European and Asian orchestras. It's changed, it's a little easier to do now, but 25 years ago, there's so many orchestras that I wouldn't have done Gershwin with and felt comfortable. Now there are enough people who understand a little bit about the style, I'm connected to it through my own family, so I can pass some of this along. And did you, did that you write? Was a very strange, that was one of the five strange recordings I've made. <laughs> it's okay. Oh, because I listened to, to it today. There were two things on there the Jaspo Brown Blues, which is always yeah. cut, and the Buzzard Song, which is always cut. Right. And, and they were cut from the Alvin Theater original production that Gershwin always saw because they weren't theatrical. It's um, also cut from the new production at the Metropolitan. Yes, which I saw. For the idea of trying to keep the length down. Right. Uh, even though. I enjoyed the production. I thought it suffered from not having the two intermissions. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and if you have the break, then you're not dealing with the sameness of musical sound and idea mm -hmm. as it goes through. So hopefully when we get around to it, um, certainly the jazz blues will be there. It, if it's not in the body of the opera, I'm thinking, about it's used as the music played as people come in to the theater. Okay. Assuming in this production that there's already milling about going on stage. Yeah. That could be very effective. That would so be nice. They're, they're always way, but I love that moment. And, and the buzzard song is wonderful. And, you know, yeah. this is such a, a masterpiece, but, you know, we have to deal with it in this 21st century time. Uh, correct. And it's interesting because when it came out, it was so revolutionary. Now, I, I, I don't know if you know, but I suffered from COVID pneumonia at the end of March. No, I, I didn't know. Yeah. Sorry, you, you look okay. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> but I was in the hospital for five days and oh, no. not, not in great shape. So one thing that I've been telling people when I've been interviewed about my music is that what was I thinking about? And what I was thinking about in those moments was I got to get out of here to get back to my family, number one. But number two, very strong number two, is I've got to write the opera that I've been chasing for 40 years. And I just, re I just recently got the rights to The Slave of Isaac Bashevis Singer. Excellent. Which is wonderful. And in any event, what compels somebody is where I'm going. So here we are, we're sitting in our respective studios and I'm going out on Zoom and podcast with this wonderful talk with you. But what are we doing when, Mr. when Dr. Fauci <laughs> says, that's a good vaccine, let's all get vaccinated and a billion people get vaccinated and we're able to go to phase four and open up the concert halls again. Wh what do you wanna do? What do you wanna do with as Lennox Locking? Because you've seen it all, you've done it all. And I was there for a lot of it. Yeah. I'm very curious about yourself. Well, I have been thinking and writing about what this is like for 
musicians, composers, and others. And the first thing we have to do is remember, it's not going to be the same, and it's not going to be when you think you're going to be coming back. Not only does the vaccine have to be developed, the overwhelming majority of people have to have taken it. More than likely, just like the flu and all the various vaccines we have for regular flu, there will still be cases of COVID. It's, it's bound to happen. So we're never going to be free of it. It will always be here. The other thing, of course, is that there are going to be people that are frightened to come back, whether they're performers or whether they are members of the audience. I'm not a huge fan of these socially distant concerts I've been looking at once in a while. It seems bizarrely dispassionate, even though the performances are good. But from the point of view of someone like yourself, I've wondered why more composers haven't, if they can, taken advantage of this situation. And I'll give you an example, I'm not meant to be critical here, but the New York Philharmonic had an interesting project that it was undergoing with, well, I believe it was 19 pieces by female composers. So what happens to those pieces? I assume they're all or mostly for full orchestra. So it'll be a while before we hear them. If I had been in the Philharmonic shoes, I would have gone back to those composers and say, would you mind writing a piece, a solo piece for different individuals in our orchestra and we will present them in whatever format we have to do it. So I'm looking for a little more creativity from the creative end in this time. What I'm seeing primarily is a rehash of all of our wonderful no, standards, which are there for a reason. I know. And, brought you. Yeah. And a lot of the programs I've done in Detroit and other places get replayed. And I try to participate in watch parties and things like that, commenting right. on the music, right. maybe give it a different perspective. But I'm sort of looking for the new. I, I, I want to be understanding of what is out there now. Well, so let me we need yeah. to plan for the future. No, you're right. And I will tell you one thing that's happened with me. I had a lot of things happening, both for my music in the next, you know, from, from when it started to the end of the year. Everything's canceled or postponed or whatever. The thing that, that has worked for me, which is the strangest thing, and I'm one of the few composers I can talk to because I speak to, you know, friends of mine, and many of whom you know. My music now is being played all over the world on radio and cable and Sirius XM. Suddenly, there's been an explosion. I've had 80 plays, eight zero plays in the past two months. Excellent. And it's only because I have very good recordings, which I've done myself with the city of Birmingham Symphony and with the mm -hmm. BBC, BBC National Orchestra of Wales and with soloists like Tim Thane. I'm writing a violin concerto for him right now. But suddenly there's an explosion. So I've been talking to the person who helps me get these things out and he is talking very plainly about how the radio, which is a hundred year old form, is suddenly for some people, in my case, it's been kind of a new wave of exposure. Because as Gershwin would have said, you, you have to hawk your music. That's right. And certainly that's something I've always done. As you know, I met you in a hotel room maybe 25 years ago <laughs> showing you my, my first symphony. Right, I remember. You do. You, I remember I you, do. Throwing, you had thrown your back out. 
<laughs> hazard. I know. But suddenly radio, which is a hundred year old form, plus cable tele cable uh, radio, like sat I'm now on Sirius X. Internet broadcasting. It's huge. And what we are doing now. So I agree with you about the solo performances. That would have been much more interesting. I know the BBC is doing it to Good. a certain degree now, but you're very, very much right. I want to talk to you about, uh, I had a question from a listener who um, is probably the most active musical um, music listener I know. She listens more to music than musicians, which I find interesting because some musicians don't like to listen to music. Mm-hmm. I have to live with her. Her name is March. And she said to oh, me, I see. <laughs> and she said to me, ask him about the traveling because she's seen your schedule. You actually met March in your office yeah. when I came down to see you at the National Symphony years ago when Nat- John Williams was there. And oh, for that festival, yes. Yeah. And he conducted a little, but then you came out, you conducted, and it was really something. But the whole Hollywood connection I loved. But anyway, Marge asked, because she looked at your schedule, and I look at your schedule that you had. I'm not, I don't know about going forward, but it was ridiculous. Every week, 50 yeah. odd weeks a year, you were all over the place. So me, as a comp- c- composer who sometimes conducts, mostly his own music, would conduct a half a dozen concerts a year, you're conducting, I don't know, <laughs> 100, 120 concerts a year, crazy stuff. And I'm, yeah. saying, to, I'm saying to, Marge says, how do you prepare the scores? I know you've done it, you've done things for years, but for me, how do you dig under the style of the composer so that you can have an equivalent uh, performance that would be something that would be unique and would be yours? It's a very important question. And now that I no longer am a music director anywhere, I have more freedom and flexibility in what I do. There are times when I've looked back and say, how did I actually manage to do that? I've been very lucky. I have one of these brains that absorbs and retains music readily. So going back and restudying a score for me in the earlier and middle phases was always not so difficult. It always came back quickly. And I learned early on how to truly read a score, knowing all the transpositions, all the clefs, and the, the eventually, actually after not very long while, the technical part, I, I, I don't even remember the last time I thought about, well, how am I gonna conduct this? I just do it. But the travel itself became wearisome. Three years ago, I had triple bypass surgery. And already I knew having had a heart attack in 2009, I said, I've got to stop doing this. So the first thing I did was eliminate the majority of conducting in the summer, take two and a half, three months off. That was the first part. The second thing was, even though the traveling may be still about 36, 38 weeks a year, something like that, I will repeat a lot of the repertoire in a season. That's something I didn't like to do before. I always wanted to go on to the next thing, keep learning, keep growing. Um, Obviously, again, not being a music director, I don't have very many new pieces to learn. uh, Unless somebody asks me if 
there's a premiere I'd be interested to give, something like that. But I'm not in a position now really commissioning anything, all those things as a music director I love to do. I do know that there is a long-term goal. Uh, it's not finite, but it has to do with realizing when the time will come to stop. My mother knew that. I think at age 60, she called me and she said, okay, then I'm doing two more weeks with John Williams, and then I'm quitting. I said, what, what do you mean you're quitting? She said, I'm not gonna play the cello anymore. And I went, mom, you play just as well now as you did when you were 30, I suppose. Well, why, why do this now? And she had a word of wisdom, which is really important. She said, because I never want people to say, I knew Eleanor Slatkin when she played well. Now, I know I have my detractors out there, certainly, but I will know the moment I begin to lose any degree of whatever it is I've accumulated. When that starts, I'm out of this business. But what do I have? I have all these fallbacks. I can write the books. I can write music. I've been writing a little more. It's been uh, getting in touch with my creative end has been really, really interesting. I have a couple pieces that are played by other conductors now. That's kind of nice. I have taken on a little more responsibility in thinking about the future of our business. As much as we may be concerned for our colleagues in orchestras and all that, where are the young people going to get their inspiration? You can't get it this way when you're a musician. Yeah. If any profession needed that personal experience because of the sound, because of what we can do, it is this one. What's going to happen when inevitably more musicians are going to start retiring because of the virus? They're going to say, yeah, it's happening, I've accrued enough years, yeah. I've got my pension, I have seniority benefits, right. I'm going to be okay, I'm stopping. I'm guessing 15% of musicians, when this is over, are not going to return. So we have a lot of creative thinking that needs to be done. Yeah. And this is in conjunction primarily, not just with orchestras, but with educators. Oh, no We've question. got to really work on the educational system from the ground up. It yeah. starts with our public school systems. Yeah. It starts with getting politicians, not all, don't ever go to the people who you know you're not going to convince, but get <laughs> some of them right. to really fight for what maybe you had, certainly I had. In my life, in public schools, all of it, in high school, three bands, three choruses, two I know. bands. I know, it was great. Shipley was, was the composer in residence. Oh, Peter, his sweetheart. We believed in what the arts yeah. represent. So this is something I'm going to be working on. Good. I'll do a bit more teaching than Good. I've done in the past, mm -hmm. uh, trying to pass on whatever I've learned that could be helpful for others. Yes. And the other area that I think is very important in this country, and you'll know this, whatever happened to all of those great composers from about 1925? Ah, my next question. 40s? My next question. Okay, ask it. Let's talk about that. I was a student of Ellie Siegmeister. Yeah. And through Ellie, I met everybody. I mean, Virgil Thompson, Aaron, I spent, Aaron looked at my music. He gave me criticism. Mm -hmm. I met Nicholas Slanimsky, who you probably knew in, in, in California. 
I knew him in California. My mother knew him quite well. I met Stokey many yeah. times with Leopold Stokowski. Um, as an aside, I would just want to say one thing. Then we're going to come back to Bill Schumann and Siegmeister and Menon and Persichetti. Persichetti was my best. Persichetti was the single best teacher I ever had. My teacher too. Yeah, but the best. I'd say Siegmeister was the best. I never worked with him. So. Ellie was an amazing teacher. He put me through the Nadia Boulanger training. I had five, wow. years of, five years of it. That's why I can get out of holes now. <laughs> Nobody tell that to my students. But I want to mention one thing before this ends, because we have just a few more minutes. There are landmarks in my musical background of going to concerts in New York, growing up as a New York kid out of Brooklyn, okay? Which you probably had in LA comfortably. And we could hear all the New York broadcasts. Uh, so we had some of you as well. But these are my memories. These are the landmarks and you're included. And I'll tell you what they are. Ansume conducting the Firebird. Mm. Second to last concert you ever conducted. Stokey, Stokey conducting um, Ives Four. Ives Four. Bernstein. Were you there the first time? I was there mm -hmm. the second time. Oh my oh, God. First one. And Merrick was up at, his partner from Ives and Merrick was up in the balcony and screamed something at the end to Stokey, I, I understand. I don't know if you remember that. I don't remember. Julian Merrick. In any event, Stokey doing that and also the Holiday Symphony and Robert Browning. I heard, I went to Stokey concerts all the time and spoke to him a lot of times. Rubenstein playing Chopin. Yes. Okay, but there's more. Stan Kenton, Woody Herman live. Louis Armstrong twice. The most remarkable mm. experience I ever had. Von Karajan conducting Valkyrie. Lenny conducting Mahler. Yeah. Leonard Slatkin conducting John Carigliano's first symphony mm. with the AIDS quilts yep. in, the, in the lobby. And I remember being backstage with you and John talking and John was amazed. They know the piece, they know the piece. I never forget that. <laughs> These are landmarks. Two bad performances. So. But Leonard, what I will tell you, your performance of that and the other times I've seen you, you work, I was at the Dylan uh, Triptych, was it? Trilogy. Trilogy. I was there and I asked you afterwards, you did a full evening of John's choral piece in Carnegie Hall. I said that with, an orchestra not from New York, right? right. I don't think so. I said, National. Right. I said, I said to you, chutzpah, it's wonderful. <laughs> I complimented you. In any event, these are landmarks of things, things we think about. So when you talk about kids today, I think it's our role to make sure they have those landmarks in all kinds of ways. You know, Stokey did reach out concerts in Philadelphia. What did you, what did you have in, in, in LA when you were growing up? I mean, not, not a lot. Um, there was actually no opera company. So that's one reason that accounts for my uh, slightly smaller repertoire in that field. We just didn't have exposure to it. it. It wasn't there. But on the other hand, I had a resident string quartet in my house. So when you have, uh, you know, Opus 130 of Beethoven, uh, who, who needs uh, uh, pearl fishers or whatever it happens to be? Uh, Bugs, Bugs Bunny. <laughs> well, we had that. I'm, you know, Carl Stalling, and all my mom is playing on all those things. You know, that's the one form that John Williams says he can't write for cartoons. And he's <laughs> right; it's the hardest. It's really tough stuff. Uh, my models were Fritz Reiner, who came to LA at, at the time oh, in the wonderful. late fifties. Made that orchestra actually sound good. They they weren't that hot. Uh, Bernstein, of course, just because he was our 
first international star. Mm -hmm. I saw and heard Toscanini live in 1952, came with the NBC symphony. And I remember that. So I was eight years old, pictures of an exhibition, you know, just made such an impression. I never heard that sound before. Carlo Giulini, because I got to know him really well and began to understand the relationship of how your life and music come together. And if you cannot have a joyous life, your music making is not going to be good. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, these are the kind of things that influenced me. And you know, you talked about that generation, Bill Schumann, Harris, all these that are sadly off the map. There are only a few of us, you included, who really grew up with this music. Mm -hmm. But there's an even more interesting crisis in that the generation that followed has now disappeared. Uh, last year, I had a Jake Druckmann piece. What a wonderful composer. Mm. Original thinking. Gone. Donald Erb. Yes. So forth and so on. So much American music yeah. that if I was a young conductor starting now, I would say, go back and explore this. Yes, of course, develop relationships with composers today. You must do that. I think the Great answer. Yeah. But you have to go back. Mm -hmm. At least for me, I think the answer is record, 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 record. I am and distribute, distribute, distribute. Get that information out there. Yes. I, and that is something that some of these fellows and ladies did not do. Yeah. And it's a problem. If you don't have the product out there in the, wherever it is, on Spotify, I'm on all labels, all platforms, everywhere. And that's the only way this stuff gets out. And I have, we have to produce stuff. We have to get players to do it and record it, get them into studios. All that's been halted with COVID-19. But part of the responsibility, at least in this country, yeah. is to get the fee rates down to allow us to do that. Do you know that if I said, okay, I, I recorded the last 12 Haydn symphonies in London. Now I'd like to do the Paris symphonies, but I want to do it in the States and I want to do it with an orchestra that I know. It's not that. If you do that and say you're using 45 players, you still have to pay everybody else in the whole orchestra. We didn't do anything. I record in England. Uh, yeah, and Wales. Or not just England and Wales. Well, Germany. You can record in so many places. New Zealand, great yeah. place for recording. Yeah, I know. There's so many possibilities. But I would, there's a case where I would say if we could find a way to get these jobs back to the States, and the only way to do it is to get the rates down. Coming yes. out of this virus, everybody's going to take a hit. They're taking it now, and they're going to take it for years afterwards. Don't yeah. be fooled. It's not coming back the way it was. It can't. Uh, last uh, question, and you and I can go on for hours. I miss you terribly, really, my friend. I really miss you. I miss you too. Thank you. When you mentioned Brooklyn Nine. You mentioned the St. Matthew. Mm -hmm. um, the piece that I'm studying now uh, is Mrs. Salendas. Oh, fortunately, I had the occasion in Los Angeles to play when I was a young person. I played viola. Have you ever conducted? Fairly, mm -hmm. Oh, I've conducted it a couple of times. Uh, it is another one of those mountains, but, and a piece that audiences are a little bit so-so about, but the, the masterwork in all this, in this Beethoven year, I would hope that pieces like this that are not on everybody's radar are the ones we turn to. I just did a seven part radio series looking at the nine symphonies, but putting them in the context of other pieces that Beethoven was writing at the time. Uh, 
And going back, having recorded a Beethoven cycle, having done it four times in my life, and looking at this man as being that person that stands so, he represents what came before and influences everybody who comes after this, just how it is. Integrity, uh, integrity. Integrity and honesty. Yes. He, he left us with what he felt. I look upon his deafness as being a plus for us. I'm not sure that he might not have thought about the advanced ideas in, in the Mises, certainly, if he'd been able to really hear it. Or well, the yes, ranges, he, he the, high the high sopranos, you know. Well, it's very difficult choral writing, <laughs> no matter what. But that's, that's how Beethoven was. Uh, you know, you, you get, I, I remember doing it in LA as a fields with a man named Roger Wagner, great choral conductor. Yeah, Roger Wagner Corral. He, he used to say in, in the, uh, what section, when Christ rises, and Wagner said to everybody, you imagine Christ is ascending on a jet. <laughs> and he brought this energy, but also the lyricism. And I had the great fortune to attend a performance and then have dinner with Robert Shaw afterwards. Mm -hmm. This is connecting with people who understood what traditions were, but also move the bar forward. Yes. That's what music is about. You did that with John's piece. Peace oh, absolutely. Thank no you. Question, I, I thought of it very much as understanding what the conditions of this composition were about emotionally, the structure, somebody who complete command of the orchestra, but there's still a message in there. And there still is today. We still have to do that. I've had the pleasure of doing this piece many, many times. I know. And I guess we can step away a little bit now and see, does it just work as an abstract piece of music? The answer yes. is yes. yes. It works better if you know why it exists. Yeah, the rage. Rage and remembrance. Rage. And remembrance. Uh, listen, this has been not rage, but joy and remembrance between rage the two of us. Rage Maybe and joy. Maybe not so much rage. I have to thank you for joining me today on Interplay. Leonard Slatter, uh, thank you Did you take you your so title much. from the Morton Gould piece? You know, Morton is another person that I adored. He was a total sweetheart. Yeah. I know, I remember Interplay. Uh, great piece. Great piece. So thank you, Leonard, for joining us. Um, Thank you and keep sending me your stuff. I'm fascinated. I love what you're doing. And I'll be really anxious to see the next work. Thank you so much, Leonard.